Hi, welcome back to Let's Talk About Race. In this week's episode, we're going to be talking about the Asian American experience with a particular focus on the model minority myth and the harmful effects of seemingly flattering stereotypes. There was a language. There were the parameters. I could step in now. That was the liberation for me. I'm not even talking about the past. I'm talking about the present. It's not an accusation. It is a plea for the life of this country. Instead of eliminating the causes that create that condition, he tries to cover it up by accusing his accuser of teaching hate. People don't hate each other. And people start talking to each other, and then they start talking to each other, they find out who's the problem. It's when the talking ceases that the ground becomes fertile for violence. So keep the conversation going. I'm very honored to be joined by my next guest, Professor Frank Wu, the author of Yellow, Race in America Beyond Black and White, a former distinguished professor, chancellor, and dean at UC Hastings College of Law, and the current president of Queens College in New York. Frank Wu, thanks so much for joining us today. Great. Thanks so much. So, Professor Wu, the reason I was excited to talk with you is currently when we talk about race in this country, the Asian American experience doesn't get as much coverage as I think it deserves. And, you know, researching the model minority myth, that's how I came across you. It's something that feels very pervasive among Asian Americans, but it's not covered that much in the media. So do you mind giving us your take on the model minority myth? And I call it myth because you call it myth. But what is it? where it comes from, and where we see it take root in society today. Model minority myth is this image either uh, Asians are uh, genetically smarter, probably playing the violin and the piano simultaneously, right? Or the idea is it's cultural. Uh, It's a set of Asian traits, and everyone else should copy Asian Americans. You're good at math and science. You're hardworking, strong family values, uh, and, oh, so polite. That's the myth. Now, it's interesting because off the bat, a lot of those obviously sound like positive attributes, being smart, being polite, um, you know, integrating into society. But my understanding from you and other people is the model minority myth is actually quite harmful, both to Asians as well as other minorities. Can you explain to someone who might think that, oh, you know, these are positive, you know, stereotypes, why actually the model minority myth is a bad thing? When I talk about this, a lot of folks say, what, what is wrong with you? Why can't you accept a compliment? Well, I'll explain. It's false flattery. Whenever someone says to me, oh, you Asians are all so polite, I want to give them a very rude gesture right away. <laughs> Not because I'm politically correct or hypersensitive, but because when you say to someone racially you're so polite, what, what are you saying? You're saying you should know your place. Be quiet passive, be submissive, right? Um, When we praise someone uh, for not being uppity, that's a message. That's not the worst of it. There there are at least three big problems here, right? Here's the first. It whitewashes bias. So when Asian Americans say, hey, we face high rates of bullying, the common cruelty of childhood, being called chink, jap, gook, being teased and taunted, picked on, which isn't just slurs, it's violence, traumatizing and dangerous. People respond, well, you're all rich anyway, right? Uh, There are studies that show Asian Americans are the least likely racial group in the United States to be promoted into management, least likely, not compared to whites, compared to all other groups. 
But because of the model minority myth, when you complain, people are like, oh, come on. We all know you Asians are doing well. Give me a break, right? So you can't get anyone to take it seriously, even if your complaint has a legitimate basis. Asian immigrants in many of the ethnic groups are bimodal. Right, what does that mean? That's just a fancy term for it. It's not a bell curve. Instead, there are two peaks. So uh, there are both the professional class. They're coming on scholarships as students, right? Or they already have a PhD or MD. But there's a whole other segment that we don't talk about. For example, there are lots and lots and lots of undocumented Asian immigrants, right? So uh, you see both a segment of the population that is relatively well off and a segment of the population that's much less well off. Finally, if uh, you take a look at different ethnic groups, you know, Asian American uh, takes people from three dozen or more different national origins and puts them under one rubric, one name. Well, if you look at many Southeast Asian refugee communities and you look at SES, socioeconomic stats, you find they look much more like African-Americans. Uh, people were Latinx than they do whites. Uh, on average, I'm just generalizing here uh, because that's what the stereotype does. It, it generalizes. Second problem is it leads to racial resentment. Um, Asian immigrants historically are punished for virtues rather than vices. Let's take the actual child prodigy, right? The Asian musician, right? The teenager and who's perfect, right? They, they can sight-read the score. They make no mistakes. What do critics say? They, they savage that person, a robot, soulless, technically, you know, great, but they don't have any character, right? It's this image that Asian Americans aren't actual human beings, right? They're, they're just part of a faceless horde. They're inscrutable. They're machine-like, right? Robot-like. Uh, and indeed, every aspect of the uh, positive traits can be flipped, turned on its head, right? What is it to be hardworking? It's to be unfair competition. What is it to be good at, at math and science? It's to lack of personality, people skills. What is it to have a strong family? It's to be too clannish, insular, not mixing and mingling. So the model minority myth is easily reversed in its valence, right? I'll give you two other versions of the model minority myth. Both are compliments on their face, but we would probably be uncomfortable, and rightly so, and pause and say, yeah, I'm not sure about that. So if someone says to you, Jews, good at making money. Okay, right, that sounds like it's a compliment, okay, but there's this whole tradition, history of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about Jews and finance. So if someone said to you, oh, Jews, good at making money, you would think, oh, I, I'm a little uneasy about what this person is going to say next, right? Or if someone says uh, about African-Americans, oh, they're such natural athletes, or about a specific African-American, you're so articulate. Those sound like they're compliments, but the people who say blacks, natural athletes, often say, oh, they were bred that way, right? So once you accept the generalization, you are locked into the abuse of all this. Now, there's actually a historical example. Some people talk about the model minority myth as, as brand new, but um, you can go back and, and look online. Uh, you can Google this. I always encourage people to do that. Don't take my word for it. There's a labor leader, 
for more than 100 years ago named Samuel Gompers. He, he was actually a, a, a great heroic labor leader, okay? Uh, but he organized folks, and he wrote, this is what you should look up online, meat versus rice, okay? It's laughable, but, when, but, but, but it's not a satire. This is not a joke. It's serious, and it had consequences. Meat versus rice makes the following argument, right? The subtitle of this uh, is uh, American Manhood Against Asiatic Coolism, Which Shall Survive. Gompers writes an entire booklet to say it's unfair. Asians eat rice. White people eat meat. Therefore, um, Asians have a competitive advantage uh, in the marketplace. Let's ban them. And that's what the United States did. The Chinese Exclusion Act was passed in 1882. It was extended to an Asiatic barred zone in 1917. And it's based on this notion, not that Asian immigrants are inferior, but that they are superior, that they will outcompete their white uh, rival, who, who, by the way, many of them were European immigrants themselves. They weren't native-born Americans. So there's this long history, uh, and if, if you're a science fiction fan, it's the Fu Manchu idea. It's that Asians uh, will uh, dominate the world and the universe if they're not stopped. So you see this resentment in so many places. Why are all the Asians winning the science fairs, the spelling bees, getting the scholarships uh, to all the schools? Where are the real Americans? You know, that, that's the other problem. What the model minority myth does is it says, hey, hate the Asians because if you don't stop them, they're going to take your job. But the third problem with model minority myth, you can see immediately, it's not about Asian Americans at all. What does it mean to be a model minority? It's the idea that you're a model for somebody else to emulate. It's a non-too-subtle way to send a message to denigrate African Americans, especially in the face, look at the Asians, they made it, why can't you? It's wrong to compare racial groups, but if you were going to compare them, at least you should understand the different histories, the different contexts, and you can Google this too, so that you can read it for yourself and see this isn't an interpretation. The original article that promoted the model minority myth, it's been called the single most influential article ever written about Asian Americans, is from the New York Times Sunday Magazine in 1966. It's called Success Story Japanese American South. So, all right, you, you read the first two-thirds of the article, and it's sympathetic. It, it's, it's full of wonderful sentiment about Japanese Americans and how great they are, how they've been in internment camps, and they've overcome that, and they've become middle class, uh, and so on, on and on and on. You get to the last third of the article, and the author, this isn't implicit bias. It's not covert. It's in your face, right out there. He explains what his point is. He says, his words, not mine, that the Asian American example stands in contrast to what might be called the problem minority. Then he goes on point by point to compare Asian Americans to Negroes and Mexicans, his words, not mine, uh, to say the people of Asian background are superior. You know, I defy anyone who reads it to not be struck at how Asian Americans are just being used uh, in this comparison uh, to advance an argument that there is no racial discrimination anymore, 
uh, and that the people of color who are suffering, basically, they deserve their lot in life. So that's the model minority myth. A lot of that has, was so fascinating to me to hear for the first time watching you talk because it is something that I wasn't as familiar with the term model minority, but the stereotype that Asians are good at math and low on personality is something that I think is pervasive. I've definitely come across it. I can't speak for everyone else. So to see, one, how that came to be very explicitly, and two, to see, again, how you're, what you talk about, which is how is this thing which seems complementary, how is it actually detrimental, for me was really interesting to learn about. I want to talk about one way in which I think the model minority myth appears to be taking root right now, which is discrimination or alleged discrimination in the higher education admissions process. There's been a couple stories in the news about it. You know, people on one side are saying that that there are there is discrimination against Asians, um, I think, along many of the same lines of the model minority myth. And others are saying that, again, it's being used to try and create a division and say, you know, focus on this group and. Uh, and at the expense of paying attention to African-Americans and trying to redress past wrongs. So I was curious if you had um, any take on as far as affirmative action goes and, you know, what could if you were going to talk to, say, a parent and an Asian-American parent who is concerned that their kid was not going to be getting a fair shot in the higher education admissions process, what would you say to them? I'm going to offer two different answers to this. The, the first, I want to be unambiguous. Asian Americans are facing anti-Asian bias. That's wrong. Asian American families and kids deserve a fair shot, like anyone else. To the extent that they're not getting that, that's terrible. And, and I've spent a career advocating and standing up and speaking out against that type of bias. That bias, though, shouldn't get blended together uh, with ideological attacks against diversity in higher education, so that Asian Americans are substituted in for whites. Uh, you know, it used to be people would talk about the innocent whites. Um, now they talk about the innocent Asian Americans. Uh, and this is not a new issue. When I was in college myself, um, I started to notice this phenomena where uh, it was sort of embarrassing to folks to talk about uh, the white victims of racial prejudice. So instead, they came up with a, a, a great move. Let's substitute Asian Americans in for whites because uh, people don't know what to make of Asian Americans, right? Asian Americans are ambiguous. Uh, we're not black. We're not white. People tend to assume we're just perpetual foreigners. You know, we don't belong to the body politic at all. Asian Americans might face bias, uh, but going and being anti-black, that's a non sequitur. When, when you think about this, if um, Asian Americans said, we're facing bias, and then someone said, oh, yeah, you're just facing bias because we're helping African Americans, right? That's just a, a way of deflecting, right, distracting people, uh, blaming somebody else. Um, now, uh, as it happens, uh, the whole framing causes us to think about what economists uh, would, would describe as a zero-sum game, right? One person's win is another person's loss. Asian Americans also benefit uh, from uh, civil rights and have historically benefited from holistic admissions. What we should really be talking about is how to increase educational opportunities for everyone. What has actually happened at most of these institutions is that they're just incredibly selective. 
So the people who are really angry, you know, if we eliminated every form of affirmative action, they would still be really angry because what's happening is they're not being squeezed out by African-Americans. They're being squeezed out by just the sheer competition of all these whites and Asian-Americans wanting to go to these institutions. Uh, the proportion of women who go to college and the proportion that women make up in, their, in, in the entering class has just gone up unbelievably. So the people who say, I don't understand, how come my kid can't get into the school that I went to? The answer is because when you went there, it was all male. And now that women are going, the competition doubled from the hat. The population doubled. Uh, and Asian Americans and whites are competing against one another. So uh, the reason you see this problem is uh, because we've just become acutely aware of competition uh, in these highly selective processes. The second answer that I would give to you is um, some time ago, I stopped debating affirmative action. I'll explain why. I'm trained as a lawyer. I've uh, spent years teaching law. And the first thing that uh, we teach in law school is that if you control the agenda, if you determine the question that is presented, you've already won the debate. The, the person whose framing of the question is accepted by the Supreme Court, uh, it's likely their answer, their argument, will be more persuasive. So um, you only have to be a debater of modest skill to recognize that when you start with what was originally a remedy, affirmative action, you've distorted the dialogue, right? Because now suddenly it's about should we abolish it, should we end it, um, you know, is affirmative action good or bad? Uh, there's a better way to do this. The better way to do it is let's start with the original problem what do we do about racial discrimination, which has an ongoing legacy, right? It's not a problem of the past. There are so many institutions where, when you look, they've just never had an African-American or a Latinx person at all. Or if they've had one, it's one. They've never had a person of color in a leadership role. And if you looked around, everyone would shrug. They would look at their feet. They would give you excuses. They would say, well, I teach my children not to use the N-word. I don't see race. Right? And all right, fine. Let's take them at their word. They're good, decent people. They would like to do better. Okay, but they haven't, right? So these racial disparities are all around us. Uh, and the bigot, they died two generations ago. Right? They're not on the scene anymore. You, you, you can't find them and take them to task. But the results, the consequences of those past practices and patterns are still with us. They're, they're in the structure of these organizations. You ask people of all backgrounds, is it right for institutions to have no black people? <laughs> the answer is no, that's not right. Okay? There's nothing wrong with white men. It's just that there's an awful lot that's right that's overlooked about African-American men, African-American women, right? Latinx men, Latinx women. And it's not a coincidence that the photo turned out that way, right? So when we start...
start there, then we can ask, well, how do we fix this? All right. Nobody wants to have quotas. Nobody wants to judge people by the color of their skin. But is that really what's going on when we assess who has potential? Um, my proposal is let's start with dialogue leading to action to address the original problem, which is, okay, we have racial discrimination and its consequences, and we have racial disparities even in the absence of outright bigotry. What do we want to do about that? Let's roll up our sleeves. Let's figure this out together because we can do this. So, Professor Wu, one of the things that was very interesting to me about your story was you were the first um, Asian-American professor at Howard Law School, which is a, one of the most famous, if not the most famous, historically black college. And you talked about how it changed your life. And you've also mentioned earlier about how the civil rights movement was you know, integral for both blacks and Asian-Americans. But right now, when we look at the current picture around affirmative action, it seems that it's being used, again, to create division between minorities. And as you use the term zero sum, and I've, I've seen that elsewhere where it seems like, okay, if you guys get this advancement, it takes away from our advancement. And I don't think that was always the case. I feel like it seems like that has become a more, you know, modern thing that, that, that's taking root. So I guess the question is, do you think that we're seeing uh, a greater division among minorities in this country, and how would you suggest to unify as opposed to divide people essentially seeking the same rights for themselves? My life was changed by becoming a professor at Howard University. I was the first Asian American to be on the faculty uh, teaching law. And the truth is, I learned as much as I taught what I couldn't have found in a book. I realized I have prejudice. We all do. I enjoy privilege. Many of us do without even noticing. You don't want to have a contest of suffering, but when I talk about the bias I've faced, I always remind myself, there's a little voice in my head that says to me, but you never went to bed hungry at night. And I talk about this so I have empathy toward others who don't look like me. You know, when I walk down the street, this still happens. Sometimes a kid will come up to me and do a Ching Chong Chinaman, you know, Kung Fu move and challenge me to a karate match, right? But I'm never mistaken for a purse snatcher, mugger, thug, which if you're African-American, you're just out bird watching happens, right? Uh, and leads to attacks on you, on the assumption that you're dangerous. Right? So, so I know that there are different forms of, of stereotyping. Being at Howard's uh, really opened my eyes, and I'm forever indebted. You're absolutely right. Uh, we don't look at history. So if you study history, you realize there's been allyship for a long time. It's the Afro-Asian experience, right? Uh, there were... Asian-American civil rights groups, and yes, they exist, that marched with Dr. King. Uh, you can find photos, for example, of uh, proud members of the Japanese-American Citizens League founded in 1929 carrying their JACL banner under the hot sun. Asian-Americans also have benefited from the civil rights movement. You know, we wouldn't have had the 1965 Immigration Act if we didn't have the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Most Asian Americans wouldn't be Asian Americans if it weren't for 
1965 Immigration Act, which you can think of as a, a twin or a, a sibling to the 1964 Civil Rights Act. The Immigration Act followed the Civil Rights Act, and, and they share a philosophy of diversity, equity, inclusion. A century ago in California, there was a beat strike in a place called Oxnard. Nobody remembers this unless you're a labor historian. Uh, but what was just amazing about the Oxnard beat strike of 1903 is that a uh, racially mixed union was formed, the Japanese-Mexican Labor Association. You know, back then, uh, many unions were racially exclusive. And uh, the Oxnard beat strike uh, was based on two communities that otherwise were being pitted against one another, right? Coming together and saying, together we can stop this exploitation. If you look at the, the last photos of Malcolm X assassinated, you might, if you look carefully at the photo, wonder who is that Asian American woman cradling his head as he dies. That's one of his closest associates, Yuri Kochiyama, Japanese-American homemaker who, inspired by Malcolm X, joined him and worked alongside him. So there are all these examples of allyship, uh, and there are so many that they're just at the margins of the history books. My final question, you know, I think that we both see more very much in agreement that conversation is something that needs to be happening. And one of the things that you said that was very interesting was a debate is a spectacle. You know, I said that limits the exchange, simplifies the opinions that are aired. And I think that maybe I'll admit myself I've been guilty of debating too much um, and maybe trying to prove my point or maybe trying to stand my ground. So you as someone who is a lawyer, someone who has written books, someone who has talked extensively about race, um, both personally and you know at large, I'm very, very curious. This is a question I ask all my guests, but I'm particularly interested for you. How is it that you think we should engage in conversations around race, you know, outside of this podcast and everyone's personal life? How should we talk about these problems? I would suggest respectfully, humbly, let's have dialogue. You know, a debate is a spectacle. We would be disappointed in a debate if the two sides said, "Hey, you know what? You you you, you have a point. Maybe we can compromise." Let's sit down and work this out. Right? You go to a debate to cheer, to be angry, to say, hey, that was a good point. We win. Conversations don't have winners, but they can have losers. You know how you lose a conversation? When you stop it. When, when you say something that doesn't offer an opening for your partner. Right? The, the Successful conversation is one where I say something, you say something, I say something, you say something, and it's about even. And we keep going. And the, the most beautiful, the most profound conversations span over a period of time. We're finally having this dialogue. Um, I stand in awe of the Black Lives Matter movement as an ally. I, I, I applaud it. Because what was obvious to some but denied by others or dismissed as uh, inconsequential now uh, must be reckoned with. 
because one of the things that when you're a minority, people try to persuade you of, this is gaslighting, is it's just in your head. Lighten up, get over it, what's the big deal? Well, when you're the butt of the joke, every time it becomes a big deal, right? But they want you to think you're imagining it, right? It's just you. And then once you tell the story, everyone else comes forward and they say, hey, you too? Wow, I didn't know that. And that reassurance that you're not alone in the world is so important to every one of us. So I hope that people will continue the conversation by adding their story. And with diversity, it's a process, not an outcome. It's like democracy. People say to me all the time, when does it end? When is it over? And why do I still have to do these trainings? I say, you know, I don't think it's going to be over. It shouldn't end. And they shake their heads and say, oh, you are a pessimist. No, I'm an optimist. If democracy were over, that would be a tragedy. The point of democracy is to engage, to participate, to be a part of it. Democracy is an activity. It's the hurly-burly of the public square, right? It's following the issues. It's supporting candidates, running for office. And so if the person standing in front of you when you go to cast your ballot said to you, oh, we voted two years ago. We're going to have to vote again another two years. Why why do we have to keep doing this again and again and again? You would understand, you know, that person missed an important civics class in high school. They, They don't get it, right? I would propose diversity is just the same. It's a process. It's not a product you can buy and put on a shelf and admire. It doesn't come in a package, right? Diversity, like democracy, is what you engage with, you participate in. And yes, it's frustrating. It's hard work. Um, but if we see it as a process, we won't be disillusioned. We, we won't be embittered. We will want to take part knowing there's no simple solution. We all want that. We all want to wake up tomorrow and the pandemic is over. We all want to wake up tomorrow and racial discrimination has, is gone. It's vanished. It's disappeared magically. That ain't happening, right? Um, it, it demands of each of us and all of us that we put in our effort to really want to do this is to understand how difficult it is, how profoundly difficult it is. Um, and that's, that's the human challenge. For listeners who enjoyed this conversation, I highly encourage you to read Professor Wu's book, Yellow, Race in America Beyond Black and White. And if there are aspects of the Asian American experience you feel I'm missing or that I should cover, please drop me a line at letstalkaboutrace.net.